Good morning and buenos dias. Buenos dias, familia. I am the Reverend Maria McCabe. My preferred pronouns are she, her, and hers. And it is, as always, a deep joy and pleasure to be with all of you and to invite all of us together into the spirit of worship this morning. Our theme for the month of January has been integrity, and we've explored different aspects of what it means to live in integrity as individuals and what it means for us as in community to live in integrity. This morning, we're going to explore together some of the risk that goes along with living in integrity, both the inherent risk in truth-telling, but also the inherent risk in truth-hearing. Our invocation this morning comes from Maya Angelou, which comes from one of her poems, which is entitled, When We Come to It. We, this people, she says, on this small and lonely planet, traveling through casual space, past aloof stars across the way of indifferent suns, to indifferent destinations where all signs tell us it is possible and imperative that we learn a brave and startling truth. And when we come to it, to the day of peacemaking, when we release our fingers from fists of hostility and allow the pure air to cool our palms. When we come to it, when the curtain falls on the minstrel show of hate and faces sooted with scorn are scrubbed clean, when battlefields and coliseum no longer rake our unique and particular sons and daughters up with the bruised grass to lie in identical plots. When we come to it, we, this people, on this wayward floating body created on this earth, of this earth, have the power to fashion for this earth, a climate where every human being can live freely without sanctimonious piety and without crippling fear. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible. We are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world that is when and only when we come to it. I'm going to share a reading this morning that comes from the great Alice Walker. If you ever want to be inspired, just go to her official website and it will I guarantee you it will lift your spirits. This comes this is an essay published in uh uh, one of her books written, which she wrote in 2006, called We Are the Ones We've Been Waiting For, which is a song we often sing in our, in our uh, religious uh, spaces. comes from a poem by South African poet June Jordan. But the title of this essay, from which I'm going to read some excerpts, is How It Feels 
to know someone died for you, living with the voice of the beloved. She says, I want to talk to you about grief. When Martin Luther King Jr. died, I was living with my husband, a white Jewish civil rights lawyer, in one of the most rep repressive places on the face of the earth, the state of Mississippi. My sister once said that she was so afraid of the state of Mississippi that she didn't even want me to fly over it. <laughs> my whole family thought I was crazy to try to live there, to live there also with a white man. My marriage to him, according to the laws of the state of Mississippi, illegal. I don't believe my sister has flown over the state of Mississippi or landed in it to this day. This is an essay from the early 1990s. However, my husband and I were there to change it, to make it a place that black people who so deeply love the South, the seasons, and the sun could truthfully call home. I was pregnant with, when the news of King's assassination reached us. It had been his voice that urged both of us at separate times to return to the South to challenge the apartheid of Mississippi. If not for his voice pointing out a duty it might have been safer to ignore, we might not have found each other not to mention a large part of our life's work. Determined to follow Martin to the end, we traveled to Atlanta for the funeral. We walked behind his mule-drawn coffin for many miles. I lost the child. How much can two people weep? It's hard to know because we were so not alone among those who were weeping all around us. We remained in Mississippi for several years after King's death, yet for me, the period following his passing represented a time of disbelief, of incredible loss and unspeakable sorrow. Only in the South, I still believe, was he mourned as deeply as he deserved. Because as Southern-born people of color, we understood what a gift his life had offered us. His shining fearlessness. Only in the South did so many of us retreat into so profound a sorrow as to appear to have been struck dumb. I could not bear to hear his voice for a very long time. And yet, there was a miracle too. Again, especially among black Southerners, even in our deepest sorrow, the daily palpable ache of missing him, which never seemed to soften or to go away, we discovered a tender, radiant certainty that made some wretched, bewildered, stunned, and stupefied part of us begin almost to smile. We knew never not to know that he had died for us. We knew that we had been seen, held precious, and dear 
beyond pain or price or sacrifice. We knew we had been completely loved. I firmly believe there is no wholeness for a people, no promised land in view until this happens. We had been seen. We had been fully loved. I don't know that there's anything any of us wants more in our life than to be seen, actually seen for who we are, seen in our wholeness, in our integrity, held precious, as she says, she's such an amazing writer, held precious beyond belief. I love today's story of Elena, the, the glass blower who goes about in disguise, and I love that moment where she takes the disguise off and allows her father to see her. I believe that it is when we are seen that we begin to heal. And sometimes that seeing has to begin with ourselves. We have to be willing to see ourselves and allow others to see us. 31 hours before his assassination in April of 1968, Martin Luther King landed in Memphis, Tennessee. His plane was an hour late because one of the many death threats that had piled one on top of the other against him and his family, one of the death threats came that day saying that there was a bomb planted on the plane. And the authorities, of course, took it seriously enough to evacuate everybody and search the plane and you know, make sure it was safe before before the plane could, could take off. By that time, he and his family were so used to receiving threats. It was a daily occurrence. And it may seem easy for some of us to keep Dr. King up in some special place where he's no longer human and to say to ourselves that these threats meant nothing because he was fearless and he was a warrior and nothing would deter him. Now part of that is true, nothing did deter him. But he was exhausted when he landed in Memphis. The threats depleted him as they would deplete any of us if we had to, if we had to hear them day in and day out. It was clear that the status quo did not want him to survive. My family and I have stood on that balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. If you ever have the chance, I'm making lots of recommendations today, if you ever have the chance, please do that. It is, a, it is a powerful moment. And in that last speech, which again has been quoted so many times as to be almost rendered meaningless, a king who was tired, 
who was exhausted from the threats, from the stress, from the danger, told the people listening to him, he said, and I'm going to paraphrase, he said, longevity has its place. We forget how young he was. Longevity has its place, he says, but that doesn't matter now. He said, I want to do God's will. And God has allowed me to go up the mountaintop and see on the other side, and I may not get there with you, he said. Paraphrasing the words of Moses, who led his people out of bondage in Egypt, but never set foot in the promised land. I may not get there with you, said King, but as a people, we will get there together. I know many of us have heard those words many, many, many times. But I think, I feel, I believe that when these great prophets share, see that vision and share that vision with us, that we too see the other side of the mountaintop. And we may say to ourselves and we may realize that we will not see the promised land either. But we know it's there. We know. We've tasted it in moments. We know that beloved community is somewhere within our reach. At the time he was assassinated, his popularity had plummeted. There had been the highs of the Civil Rights Movement, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, incredibly revolutionary legislation. The Voting Rights Act after Selma, incredibly revolutionary legislation. And what I want to say about that in this moment is that, again, we remember King, or maybe we don't, but we, we remember King and we, re, and we are perhaps inspired, maybe even intimidated by his courage and by everything that he brought to this journey, which he pursued to the end of his life. But you and I need to remember the tens and tens of thousands of primarily black people in this country and the tens and tens of thousands of individual acts of courage that made those laws come into being. The protesters, the ones who tried to, who tried to register to vote. When King called people to Selma, when the great protest marches occurred in Selma, only 2% of eligible black voters in Selma had been allowed to register in spite of laws that should have prohibited that, that discrimination. Hundreds of them, when the marches were over and everybody went home, hundreds of them lost their jobs in retaliation. And I invite us to sing their courage today 
to sing their courage and to thank them in our hearts for what they did. Because we benefit from those laws. There is a risk to speaking the truth. Truth tellers are not that popular. (laughs) We know this. But there's also a risk to hearing the truth. If there hadn't been a risk to hearing the truth, the status quo would not have wanted King dead. He spoke about and wrote about taking his, his, his message out of the South into Chicago. He said he encountered the worst cruelty and bigotry of his entire life in Chicago, where protesters threw rocks at him, specifically at his head, and knocked him down, saying things like, you would look good with a knife in your back. Sounds like some of the rhetoric we're hearing today, doesn't it? Sounds like some of that rhetoric. There is a risk. As if you and I, if we listen deeply to the truth, to the truth of experiences that may be different from ours, we will be transformed. You can't unhear it, can you? I mean, you can try. (laughs) We can't unhear it. But here's the thing. When you and I allow ourselves to hear, that's when the healing starts. That's when beloved community gets closer and closer. This is for you, Jesu. Jesu teases me because I call us the love people, right? As Cornel West says, love, justice is what love looks like in public. If we're the love people, we are the justice people too. Those shining moments of the civil rights movement, even though they were followed by lows, those were moments in which people in our faith tradition, like many others around the country, we found levels of unbelievable courage. Not necessarily the shining lights like the the Dr. Kings of the world, but the individual acts of courage in Philadelphia, in New York, in Chicago, in many places, and down in in the South, in Selma, where hundreds and hundreds of Unitarian Universalists went to march after they saw the horrors that happened on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. They went to march. They went to link arms with African Americans in Selma and say, tell us what you need from us. And they were transformed because they listened and they heard the truth. And here, some of you heard me talk about this on Monday, right here in this fellowship, you linked arms with other faith communities right in this area to support and provide solidarity for those who wanted to attend H. Rap Brown's trial in Bel Air. 
This fellowship opened its doors, provided a safe place for meetings, and made relationships with other faith communities like Ames, United Methodist Church, and others. Individual acts of courage that transformed what this fellowship was. We're strong. We can take the truth. It may change us, but it will also heal us. Someone spoke earlier about values. Our values are love and justice. In order for us to live into those values, we can try to emulate the great heroes, but I know we can emulate the small acts of courage and integrity that are all around us now and have been all around us for as long as this republic has stood. Amen. Ashe and blessed be. Dear ones, we cannot think our way into freedom. We can't imagine our way into freedom. And we can't talk our way into freedom. We have to show up. We have to show up for freedom. We have to show up in the places that love is calling us to, that hope is calling us to, and that joy is calling us to. We have to show up in our bodies with open hearts and open hands. As you leave this blessed place today, I pray that we find our collective courage, the collective love we have in our hearts, that we may show up, continue to show up, so that one day we won't be singing someday, we'll be singing our gratitude for what we have now. Be blessed. <laughs>